Could everyone take a seat, please? We're ready to get started. Well, thank you. It's, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you all to uh, this afternoon's session on our genes and our addictions. We have an uh, absolutely uh, all-star panel, which I will introduce to you momentarily. But we're actually going to begin the proceedings by uh, showing a brief video uh, f focusing on um, a recent paper published by uh, one of our panelists, uh, Amir Levine, about uh, he, he has published an academic paper about the effects of what happens when you, in effect, administer nicotine to mice followed by cocaine. And, and it's basically uh, demonstrating in an animal model why there is the proverbial uh, a gateway process. You know, it's, we, we talk about uh, nicotine and alcohol and other drugs being gateway drugs to, to harder drugs. This is the first study uh, that's done with, you know, sort of controlled environment and animal model that demonstrates the actual molecular and cellular processes by which this takes place. And this is a video that is uh, meant to demonstrate for a, for a lay audience the, the, the details of this study. Uh, after the video, which is just a couple minutes long, um, we'll quickly assemble the panel here and I'll introduce them and we'll be off to the races. So thank you. And without further ado, let me see if I can operate this technology. In the history of science, often the most interesting problems emerge at the interface between different disciplines. And our work falls very much in this category. The study represents an attempt to bridge between epidemiological studies in people um, and uh, biological studies in experimental animals, particularly in mice. What you find in the human population that there is a unidirectional order in which, for instance, 97% of cocaine users have smoked uh, before they started using cocaine. And the beauty of the animal experiments is that you can reverse the order of exposure and have an opportunity of understanding what the underlying mechanisms are that could explain uh, the unidirectional effect. If you take nicotine acutely just once, its effects are very short-lasting. But if you start to take it repeatedly, like other drugs of abuse, it starts to produce changes in the brain, which we call neuroplastic changes, that will lead, last much longer after the nicotine had been discontinued. For example, in this very elegant work of uh, that Dr. Candels and his collaborators, they showed that repeated administration of nicotine produces changes that actually prime the brain to feel the rewarding effects of cocaine uh, more intensely. What we did was we treated mice with nicotine for seven days and then we gave them cocaine. So we designed the sequential treatment paradigm. And then we did also the opposite. We treated mice with seven days of cocaine and then gave them nicotine. Typically what happens when a mouse is injected with cocaine, it starts to run around a lot and then if it's given cocaine again and again for the next several days, it would run around even more and more. But then when you give nicotine first for seven days and then you give cocaine, the mouth would run around a lot more than if it just got cocaine by itself. 
So somehow nicotine was able to sensitize the mouse to cocaine. And then we looked in electrophysiology, we measured electrical currents in the rewarding area in the brain. And typically cocaine has a very specific electrical current in the brain in the place that's called the nucleus accumbens. But then if we treat with nicotine first, we see that nicotine would enhance the effect of cocaine in electrophysiology. So then we moved on to look at gene expression, and we concentrated on the FOSB gene, which has been called a molecular switch for addiction. And what we saw was that if you treat with cocaine, you see an increase in FOSB. But if you treat with nicotine and then you give cocaine, you see a great enhancement of FOSB expression. So that was very, very important to see that it also, on a gene level, you see a great enhancement of the effect of nicotine on cocaine. You have an anatomically different brain as a result of addiction. There's growth of certain processes, retraction of others. So it's anatomically different. These findings really reiterate how important it is to never start smoking to begin with. But it also gives you an idea that stopping smoking is also very important. These are things that uh, we have to face as we recognize that, that cigarette smoking, though the prevention efforts have been very effective on decreasing it, we still have a massive problem with respect of number of people that smoke and die, or if they don't die, suffer from its consequences. It's gigantic. And every day we have new people starting to smoke. And, and that needs not be. There was no cigarette smoking addiction at the beginning of the 20th century, none. So stopping nicotine usage is doubly important. Uh, and it has tremendous public health significance. Everybody all hooked up? Can you hear us? Well, I want to start. I'm going to introduce uh, each of our, our panelists in turn. Uh, I'm Scott Stossel. I'm the editor of the print version of the Atlantic magazine. Um, and then going down the, the, the row from the far end, you probably recognize uh, at least these two folks from the video you just watched. Uh, and I'm the, I'm the only one up here um, who's not a doctor, so it's my job to uh, try to uh, – I, I play the stupid person who can explain. I, I can ask a stupid question so you don't have to. Um, but Dr. Amir Levine uh, is a, a psychiatrist uh, and neuroscience researcher at Columbia University uh, where he's worked with – and you saw Eric Kandel um, um, on screen there. Eric is uh, absolutely legendary, won the Nobel Prize, one of the premier neuroscience researchers uh, in the world, and he's the lead – uh, researcher on the on the, on the study that uh, we're going to discuss primarily here. He's also happens to be an expert on the psychology of attachment, where a lot of his other uh, research uh, interests uh, are directed. And he, in fact, just published a book called uh, about attachment, which I which I highly recommend. Um, uh, in the middle here is is uh, Dr. Nora Volkow. Uh, she is probably the dean of addiction studies in the world at this at this point. Um, 
she um, is director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse at the NIH, um, one of the world's leading experts on the neuroscience of brain addiction, and particularly on the role of the dopamine system. And in fact, one, we, we, no one would have shown up for the panel, but we could have called this the dopamine panel, because I think uh, all, all of us, uh, or everyone up here, is, is uh, an expert on the uh, uh, role that dopamine plays in, in uh, addiction processes. Um, she's a medical doctor, and she's astonishingly prolific. I think I've read a tiny fraction of what she's published, um, some 500 peer-reviewed journals and 90 book chapters over a career that's not even all that long yet. So um, we're, we're incredibly honored to have her in our presence. And uh, to my right here is uh, the president um, and uh, founding director of uh, the Legacy Foundation. Um, the Legacy Foundation is dedicated to stopping kids uh, smoking before they start smoking, and also uh, dedicated to the idea that anyone can stop smoking at at any time. Um, her ambition is to get children to reject tobacco, um, and she ha is the author uh, or one of the progenitors of the highly successful anti-tobacco campaign, which I'm sure many of you saw, the Truth Campaign, uh, which, and she was telling me last night about the astonishing. Um, they have metrics that show how astonishingly effective this campaign was at, at getting young people to stop smoking. Um, I should say probably she herself is, if I'm not mistaken, a former smoker whose who's, uh, family members, uh, several family members have actually um, passed away as a result of tobacco-inflected uh, diseases. And so she um, brings not only you know, advocacy skills and, and, and scientific expertise, but also real personal passion. She's a professor uh, at uh, clinical public health, public health at Columbia University. Um, and um, thank you all for, for, for joining us. Um, but I wanted to start, why don't, why don't we just start by telling us, the, the movie did a very good job of kind of translating for a... Um, lay audience the significance of your study. And, and let me back up and frame a little bit what we're going to be talking about here today. The, the study and, and science of genes and addiction has, is, is enormous and growing. I mean, ge genetic studies in general are just um, proliferating wildly, um, which is leading to you know, enormous opportunities, particularly in, in the field uh, of addiction studies. And what I'm interested to talk to you all about today is, first of all, you know, what is some of the most interesting cutting-edge science here? What are we learning about as we start to tie um, the, the activity at the neural and the cellular level and the, even the genetic level to the behaviors that we observe um, in people with uh, alcoholism, addiction, nicotine addiction, what, what have you? And then also, um, you know, and you're here as uh, we've got three scientists, one of whom is now principally in, engaged in, in advocacy, but how do you get from... Uh, the, the raw science that we're learning to the very compelling um, outcome studies that uh, you know, you're able to then take and, and, and run with in, in your advocacy uh, in terms of you know, getting people to stop smoking. But let's just go down, down the row and, and, and talk about in that, what's the takeaway from that video? I mean, what, what's the important thing we should learn? Okay, actually, one of the things, there's another component to this study that's not shown in this uh, video because we thought it was it's maybe too complicated, but it's actually maybe the most uh, interesting component and it has what we call an epigenetic component. And what we find is, is that um, nicotine has a very unique ability, and basically the way that it works, the way our genes are being expressed in our, in our brains is that, um, in actually anywhere in our body, the DNA is a very long molecule. It's about five feet long. It has to fit into each and every cell in our body, and it fits into each and every cell because it's compacted. There's a compacting mechanism. Um, it's very sort of negatively charged, and it's compacted by these positively charged beads that are called histones. 
But it's a very smart compacting mechanism because it both compacts the DNA and also controls its expression. So what we found was that uh, nicotine has very unique ability to, um, to cover those positive charges uh, in those histones and therefore really untangle the DNA. And now when you give cocaine, it's able to, some of the genes, like that FOSB gene that goes up, and that's a very important gene for addiction, it actually untangles the DNA in such a way that now FOSB will go up a lot more. So that ability of nicotine to, that unique ability that we find for nicotine um, really positions it as a potential gateway drug. So what happens is that when, if um, the mouse, and we think also people, because these are very conserved mechanisms, uh, when um, the brain on nicotine, when it first sees cocaine for the first time, it's a different brain almost than if you were just given, uh, if the animal was just given cocaine by itself. So this particular uh, epigenetic effect has a lot of different uh, sort of potential um, therapeutic, so we can bring about certain therapeutic ideas because if you, can, if you can do the opposite of nicotine, if you can actually enhance that sort of clamping of the DNA. Close it down. Right, if you close it down, you might be able to uh, shut down the effect of cocaine. And in fact, we have a little component in that study that shows, that's starting to show that, and now we're looking into that even further. And, and let's just define some basic terms here for, for the um, scientific literates like myself here. The, what you're talking about, and when we're talking about epigenetics here, I mean, there's genetics, which is basically the study of how genes translate into our, you know, you have your underlying genotype, which is your, your genome, and then how it gets expressed in behavior, traits, stuff is, is your phenotype. Epigenetics is kind of the interaction of genes and environment. And what, what basically what you're talking about is that um, simply the, the act of smoking, at least in these mice, and we believe this to be, to be conserved to humans, changes the genetic expression of certain certain gene sequences that then make you more predisposed to feel more powerfully the effect of cocaine and, and more likely to become addicted to it? Is that... So in a way, so it gets a little bit complicated, but just like it changes the, um, the, the way that the DNA is, the way that it's structured, in a way that it's actually, it's more loose. So then when something else comes along, then the chances of becoming more addicted will be higher. Mm -hmm. Because then, because we have certain genes, but those genes need to be expressed Basically, they, those genes are expressed, they become RNA, then protein, and that's actually what then defines the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so then it really increases the, uh, the amount. So when you actually you do cocaine, you will get a lot more of that gene, a lot more of that protein, and that will translate into other changes in the, uh, in the brain. And I should say, having read the study, a lot of which, it, it, which is brilliant, a lot of it, only some of which I can understand, these, are not, these mice are not actually smoking cigarettes and, and snorting cocaine. These are not party <laughs> mice. They, 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 put, they put nicotine in the water and then, and then inject the cocaine. Um, Nor, what, 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 what is um, revolutionary potentially about Amir's study? Well, it is actually the translation that goes from uh, the transition from genetics into epigenetics. And, and we all are very aware of genetics, that we inherit genes that make us more or less vulnerable for different diseases. And that also pertains to addiction. And this is very well established. And actually, I should say that one of the seminal pieces of work that brought that out was a paper in 1967 published in Science in which they show that by breeding certain rats, that they were, actually, they were mice, actually, they were able to uh, make mice that will selectively administer opioids as opposed to that animals that did not. So the investigator said we are basically genetically transmitting from one generation to another a factor that is making these animals vulnerable to opioids. 
extremely important work. Uh, we know the issue that has been challenging is what is it that it's being inherited? And at the, at the essence of that, we have the whole issue of genetics on one side and on epigenetics on the other. We now know there are multiple genes that are likely to be involved in the vulnerability for addiction. But we've also come to recognize, and now we know that there are families of people where the parents have addictions, the children. So 40 to 70% of vulnerability to addiction is genetically determined. But we also know that environment is crucially important, and you can inherit all of the genes that you want. If you are not exposed to the drugs, you will not become addicted. And that's why I make the point, at the beginning of the last century, we had no one uh, addicted to nicotine, even though our genes that made us vulnerable for that were still there. So what is it that we have learned since that 1967 to now, which actually I think it is at the edge of what uh, Amir's study has been showing? First of all, the way that genes can make us vulnerable is multiple ways. One of them, very simple, the first findings. If you are of an oriental descent, you're more likely to have this gene, a gene involved in metabolizing alcohol. So the orientals, many of them, have a gene that does not allow them to metabolize alcohol properly, so they accumulate the toxic substances, and alcohol becomes very aversive, and you are protected. And that is probably the most solid finding of a particular gene that, that met, mitigates against addiction. But then you have now, opening up the door, the concept of genes. The way that, and this is going to be true not just for addiction, but for a lot of diseases, the way that genes are making us vulnerable is by modulating our reactivity to the environment. So it's almost like amplifiers or protectors against those signals. So what, how does that come about? For example, there are certain genes, and actually the famous dopamine genes. Dopamine is a system that allows us to respond behaviorally to stimuli, external or internal. The reactivity of that system is going to be modulated by your genes. So some people are going to have more sensitivity than others. Therefore, not surprisingly, genes involved with dopamine neurotransmission are involved not just in addiction, in obesity, but are also relevant to personality. And now we, and, I, and again, I'm putting a, a simplified version of an example because this can go in multiple parallel avenues. Personality, risk seeker, novelty seeker, uh, impulsive. Those traits are genetically inherited and they are affecting the way that your brain works. And that in turn affects your response to drugs. So in some instances, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. You have the gene or not that metabolizes drug. In another one, the interaction is indirect. Do you have the genes that modulate the function of your brain that result in a certain personality that you make you much more able to respond to the environment? And then the third one, which is what Amir's works comes around, is that the genes are influenced by the environment. And now we know and that's probably one of the most fascinating areas of life science and since genetics, epigenetics. Every single cell in your body, every one of them, has exactly the same DNA. Your neuron, your gastrointestinal, your skin. And yet, each one of those cells is completely different. Why? Epigenetics. Epigenetic basically puts marks on your DNA that silence or activate. It's an extraordinary orchestration. So it determines the fate of cells. But it also determines the way that you respond to the environment. And there are certain stimuli that will actually activate those epigenetic marks, producing silencing or activation of genes that otherwise would have not been expressed. 
And what is so extraordinarily relevant about this paper is that it shows for the first time, to my knowledge, that uh, a drug of abuse, nicotine, is able to directly produce epigenetic marks in genes that are relevant for the process of addiction. That is, genes, proteins that allows us to produce memories, neuroplastic changes. And nicotine evidently is doing this. Now, how does that turn it back to, to the process of, of addiction? So you can start to see how the ball is going back and forth, genetics, epigenetics. Well, your genes, the DNA on your genes, will have different characteristics that it will make it more or less sensitive to these epigenetic modifications. So there may be certain genes when exposed to the environment will have the epigenetic modifications more than another person. So it's opened up a completely new way of understanding and investigating long-lasting effects of stimuli like drugs, in this case addiction, in the human brain. And of course, to me, one of the big challenges is that this information, in turns, opens up the possibility, as Amir was saying, of designing a completely new set of interventions for therapy. Can we design things that revert those changes such that the long-lasting neuroplastic changes are no longer there, and you can get a response to the environment that was the naive response before the individual got exposed to drugs. Um, and I want to get to Cheryl in a minute, but uh, and one question, and we'll, we'll talk about this at length later, but, but two questions uh, are raised by, by what you've been talking about, Nora, and, and one is, uh, and actually by all of the research that's emerging on sort of genetics and epigenetics of, of addiction, which is, you know, what happens now that we've moved uh, from a sort of character or moral failure model of, of addiction to the disease model. Um, and, and, and then related to that, you know, you've done a lot of studies uh, with sort of MRI research showing how the, uh, and, and, and other neuroscientific research about um, how the addicted brain actually responds, you know, largely in the, in the dopamine system but in all kinds of other um, areas. And so, it, first of all, I guess, is there a difference in kind between if you, you could have the same person who, uh, or two different people subjected to the same uh, circumstances, which is exposure to, say, cocaine or alcohol? One of those people will have the drink of alcohol or, the, or, the, or, the, or uh, have the cocaine, and they will not become addicted. One will. Is there a difference in kind, um, you know, in, this, in the actual structure of the, of the dopamine scene, uh, uh, system or in the sort of underlying genotype? Or are we all on a continuum? Because we all know, I mean, and a lot of what the dopamine system is involved in is not just addictive, well, it's, it's sort of all forms of addictive and compulsive, impulsive behaviors. So is the dopamine system of somebody who is prone to become a hardcore addict visually or in some ways different in kind from uh, the person who wouldn't, or is it, is it a matter of a, 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 it's on a continuum? We all, we all have these temptations. We're all at some level subject to risk of addiction, but the people who are much more at risk have a different brain system. Uh, and I, and I, that is actually a, a, a very important, crucial question. And for many years, there was the concept of a switch. You turn a switch and you transform from someone that has control over their drug intake to becoming addicted. And the reality is that that's not the case. It is a dim dimensionality of addictiveness. And we all have had experiences in our life where we basically are under better self-control than others. And at the essence of addiction, there is disruption in self-control. So we can all, though, uh, metaphorically understand that process that under certain conditions we can buffer 
an environment where we are being tempted and we can control it and others we cannot. And in the process of addiction, we see a similar effect. So, so addiction is not just one protein that is abnormal. You can end up in addiction by multiple routes. And, and that has an advantage because you can strengthen one point to compensate for a deficit in another one. And for example, we know that dopamine is central. So it's almost like a, the key node that enables us to respond. But there are many roads that go into the dopamine system and that get out of the dopamine system that are going to be translating the behaviors of addiction. And for example, glutamate, the glutamate signaling, which is crucial for memory. Glutamate signaling allows us to form memories because it strengthens communication between two cells, which is what addiction is doing. So those, for example, are stimulated by the dopaminergic activation that facilitates the glutamatergic signal. So if you were to look at a particular individual on addiction, first of all, you will find that there's tremendous diversity among people that are addicted to drugs, and there's not one single signal that can actually allow you to predict with certainty this person is addicted and these do not, in part because of that dimensionality and the multiplicity of stimuli that, that are playing a role in determining whether you control or not control. Um, well, I know, that, and I know that you've been uh, quite enthusiastic about what the implications uh, of Amir's study is as an advocate because it kind of puts scientific evidence between what you've been arguing based on other scientific uh, pieces of evidence. And you, we were talking last night, and you've given me some statistics that actually astonished me um, that somewhere between 80 and 95 percent of all uh, schizophrenics are smokers. Um, and that people who have ADHD are once they start smoking, are it's 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 much harder for them to 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 quit. And then th this is one that really blew my mind that for the leading cause of death among alcoholics who are in recovery, they've given up drinking. It's no longer that uh, the, the the greater likelihood is not that they're going to die from something related to their alcoholism, liver failure, or, or heart disease. It, it's um, from smoking. Um, so is, how, what is it about, about Amir's study that, that is such a breakthrough for your work in sort of trying to sell the world on the idea that um, you know, smoking is it's generally said it's a public health issue, but really um, it, it, you know, st stopping smoking not only stops the effects of uh, the, the deleterious health effects of smoking itself, but of all the things that follow on when you get into other drugs. Well, exactly, and I, I'm going to bring it really down to the lay audience because I'm confused already, which is, <laughs> which is understandable. Um, the, ob the obvious uh, implication of Amir's study is that if what he found in a mouse model is true in a human model, then I would not want to be the president of Philip Morris when his scientific ex team explained the implications because the implications are that um, nicotine use is an independent, potentially independent cause of cocaine addiction or exacerbator of cocaine addiction. Um, if you are environmentally in a situation to be subjected to it. So um, there will be, need to be much more research, but already epidemiological research suggests that order of occurrence. It could be correlational or it could be partially causal. So to me, that's the big policy implication of that. But as important is all that we've learned about the way that one's genetic propensities and the environment interact with one another to determine whether we will become at risk. And let me just give you an example. If this room was a typical average uh, room of Americans, 53% of us would have a mental health problem um, within the last year. 
in a, in a report. And that's a very broad range from phobic to schizophrenic. Um, among that population, 40% smoke, which is double uh, the amount of, of people who otherwise smoke. So why is that the case? Um, no one actually knows if it's the case. And in fact, in 2009, a very provocative paper came out. And in the commentary in which essentially it said, of the 45 million Americans that still smoke, um, about half of them are either addicted to other substances or have a major mental illness, most especially depression. And in their commentary, they postulated that no one has yet figured out the order of events and that, in fact, nicotine itself could be one of the causes of, of depression. So um, we know a lot about um, key factors. Nora mentioned one, a personality type that's sensation-seeking. What we know from legacy is sensation-seeking kids are vastly more likely to become smokers if they're exposed to the opportunity. They're also vastly more likely to be early act, active, early sexual uh, types, you know, at higher risk of teen pregnancy, at higher risk of other substance abuse. Um, kids who have uh, attention deficit disorder have double the rate of becoming smokers and find it virtually impossible to quit on into adulthood. These are classic, to me, examples of where underlying genetic propensities interact with the environment and put us in a situation that um, we come to the party with a certain set of genes, and then depending upon what happens to us, stuff happens. So let me just give two very just blunt examples. You're a kid living in central Harlem, and you have all of those underlying genes. And you walk outside, and literally everywhere you look, there are ads plastered all over the place for tobacco and for alcohol. <clears throat> and you're on the corner, and all of your friends have those products. And no one thinks twice about letting you have them. And in fact, you can buy a Lucy for five cents at, at half of the stores, which one study demonstrated. That same kid with exactly those same genes living in, West, in Westchester County with wealthy parents may never have that same exposure or may have it at a level that's 90% less. So that's just an example of sort of the, the world, real world concept of how a genetic propensity may or may not express itself. And actually at the heart of all that is this concept of social justice. And I think there's never been a more you know, damning uh, piece of evidence that came out of the one secret tobacco documents than a 20-page paper called SCUM produced by R.J. Reynolds company, and it Did was they a, call it they called it scum, <laughs> they called it scum, and 18 months later, an executive crossed it out and put Project Sourdough, and in a minute, you'll know why. It was a mar strategic marketing plan to increase the smoking level of urban-dwelling homeless people and gay men in San Francisco, and they had specific targets, and they had a base-level cheap basic brand, and then they had a very chic brand that they wanted the gay male community to take up. And so they called this Project Scum. And you know, this is important in the sense that the tobacco industry documents are filled with discussion, and believe me, I'm sure the alcohol industries are as well, though those have not been made public through litigation, are filled with references to, we need to explain to the consumer that this will calm their nerves, this will make them feel better, this will comfort them in their time of need. And they actually talk about one of their key market segments being people that have psychiatric predispositions. Well, so targeting the mentally ill to the level of literally targeting the homeless mentally ill and calling them scum. That, I mean, I don't know how, that, that was, how, how does it get worse you, than you, that? You, I don't know. I, I came across a paper that was one of the most startling things where they, they are actually, uh, the, some of the tobacco companies 
all but explicitly are, are advertising to the schizophrenic. Um, um, they say, you know, you have, I mean, it's, it's, it's really um, a, a astonishing. Um, I want to talk to, to, to you guys. I mean, you're, so you're pure research scientists. You're also a, a, a clinician. Um, but we're sitting up here, and we've got sort of two um, um, sort of basic scientists and one person with a scientific background who is now an advocate. Do you feel comfortable with the, uh, you know, she's now taking this research and sort of running with it uh, in, in, a, in an effort to, is, is, is that um, a good thing in your view? Uh, I mean, I, I, you, obviously, you've studied this enough to realize that addiction is a horrible scourge. Um, it is a disease uh, rather than kind of a merely a social problem or a problem of will or uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I think it is crucial that science and the knowledge that comes through is uh, utilized to make decisions and to actually improve the way that we uh, regulate. One of, for example, in in the Amir's experiment, and again, uh, the implications are actually way beyond what a lot of people can think of because the epigenetic, which is worth bringing uh, to this audience, We've all, always classically got to the notion that you inherit the genes from your parents. But in animal studies, there's evidence that you can actually inherit epigenetic marks. That is to say, an environmental effect can be inherited to the second or third generation. That has been demonstrated in animals, and indeed, there is one of the researchers that we found that have shown that exposing the fathers to cocaine will influence the third generation in terms of behavioral outcomes. So what Amir is showing is that if you do, if, and again, this has to be shown in humans, but my experience is that biology does not discriminate between humans and rats as much as we would like to. The reality <laughs> is that nature develops programs because they are very, very smart and just repeats them in, in different networks, and that generates different organisms. But if indeed there is this transgenerational effect of epigenetics, then you bring it to another level because it's not just you are affecting your own body, but you could actually affect your progeny through an environmental effect. And I, I wanted to put that in the table because that's not necessarily something that people know, that now there is this whole um, theory that you can inherit environmental exposures transgenerationally, documented in animals. So sorry to... In Introject that, but I thought that was an important aspect. So yes, it is, I mean, I would sort of say it's crucial for us as a society to advance, to be able to take advantage of science and knowledge. I was very naive when I came to Washington and I thought science and data moves the world. No, they don't. <laughs> you have to make a compelling story. And so my perspective now that I have to administer dollars for science is, what type of information can be so eloquent that even someone that doesn't want to look at it cannot avoid seeing it? How do we change a culture? Because it's not automatic. Um, how, how, you both addressed this a little bit earlier, but how can we, what are the practical uses of the, of the evidence that's emerging from studies like yours and others where we are now starting to understand about the mechanisms um, that you know, express the genes that make us predisposed to addictive behavior. How do we, does this mean we're going to come up with new pharmacological interventions? There will be drugs that you can take that can, in effect, uh, block the craving um, of, of the nicotine addict or the cocaine addict or the heroin addict? Or, or is it more that we can use it towards prevention because you can, if we, you know, nowadays gene testing is becoming more, you know, 
pr prevalent, and you know that can be used or misused. But you know, if I if I if we take a test and it could somehow show, well, you have the genetic a genotype that is going to predispose you. Actually, I did. I, I signed up for 23andMe, which is this um, uh, genetic testing service started by one of the co the, the wife of the co-founder of Google, and. Um, it tells you all kinds of things. It tells me that I have, you know, more likely to have fast twist, twitch muscles. I have wet earwax. I have brown hair. Um, but it also says I have at typical risk of addiction to heroin. Um, I mean, it, 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 I guess for one thing, is, is this just sort of genetic reductionism, you know, taken to an, an extreme? Or, or is this stuff that we can actually use and that if you uh, were to identify people who are more genetically predisposed especially if they have an environmental background that would, you know, whether it's got trauma that would predispose them to addiction. Are there things we can now do to intervene or things that we can do to treat them after the fact that we didn't have 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago? Amber, do you want to give it a try and then I'll... Sure, yes. Yeah. So what we did in that study actually is that we used an old drug that's called, we used an old drug that's called theophylline. That drug has been used for many years to treat asthma, especially in kids. And there was one report just showing how these systems really do work um, these are very conserved mechanisms, and they work in many different tissues in our body. So this uh, drug uh, we read, we saw this one paper where it showed actually that theophylline had the opposite effect of nicotine. It can really compact the DNA. And so we first checked to see whether that happens in the brain, and we saw that it, di that it did. And we treated the mice, instead of with nicotine, with theophylline, uh, specifically directly into that um, nucleus accumbens, that area in the brain that's uh, very much involved in, uh, in drug and reward. And Basically, what it did, it really uh, compacted the DNA. And then when we gave the cocaine, and you saw that FOS B, usually it goes up really robustly. It didn't go up at all. It completely blocked the response of, uh, in the nucleus accumbens, that gene response that then would later on, we think, really translates into long-lasting neuroplastic changes. It basically didn't occur. So that now we're actually checking to see if that also, we looked at that both in terms of gene expression and electrophysiology, and now we're doing some experiments to see if it translates also to changes in behavior. But you can see how, first of all, you can actually utilize drugs because this whole field of epigenetics, I really, really, a lot, most of the research that was done in this field is actually done in cancer treatment because it's also a very promising field in the, in the cancer research. But we're actually using some of those drugs that have been utilized and that are actually now coming down the pipeline, pipeline for cancer. And if we understand these epigenetic mechanisms in the brain, we could potentially, because these mechanisms happen naturally in the brain, but it's almost like you can turn a knob on or a volume, you can turn the volume on or the volume down on a certain, um, um, sort of something that would happen naturally. So if you want to increase or enhance the memory, you can give a certain drug that you can actually drive that and you can actually enhance the memory. But if you want to decrease the memory, you can give something like theophylline and potentially you would actually like really take away the influence of cocaine uh, by using this old drug that's been around forever, but now we have a new understanding of what it can do. Yeah, no, and I think that Amir has addressed uh, one of the big challenges, first of all, the drugs that we currently have are actually drugs that have been developed for the treatment of malignancies. Because in cancer, what you are doing is exactly these epigenetic processes are, for example, silencing genes that are involved in repair, on DNA repair, and activating genes that may basically be leading to division of the cell. So these, uh, in cancers of blood, for example, this particular type of drugs like Saha actually have uh, positive effects. Now, in the brain, the problem is that these types of drugs are completely non-selective. 
So you are going after these enzymes that are involved not just in regulating the genes that we are interested here on addiction, but they are involved in a wide variety of physiological processes of the cell. And if we focus specifically on what addiction is, which is the creation of a very strong, powerful memory, those uh, same molecular targets are the ones that we actually have to use for learning. So as Amir was saying, if you want to increase learning, you can actually develop drugs that do something similar to what nicotine is doing. But if you want to antagonize addiction, you actually lead to a decrease in the expression of genes. But guess what? You're going to pay a price that you're not going to be able to learn and memorize. So right now, we do not have the knowledge to specifically manipulate in a selective molecular way, which is what's necessary. But my perspective on all of this is that you start by understanding. The epigenetic field started many years ago, but it really didn't get momentum until the past, I would say, five or six years. You just look the literature is going wild. And as we gain knowledge, I predict that we will be able to tailor drugs that specifically target um, the histones or the enzymes on, on, on the molecular targets that we're interested. Or if we don't do it directly, we will be able to do it indirectly. At the clinical level, you and you've both, I mean, Nora, you've been doing this for, for, for a number of years. You said epigenetics has exploded the last five, six years. If someone had come to you uh, 20 years ago as a clinician, how would the treatment uh, differ based on what you, you know, would have applied then versus now? And I'll, I'll put this in personal terms. My, uh, uh, I have a brother-in-law, and he's okay with me my talk about this because he's actually now somewhat advocate, but he, he was a heroin addict. Um, and uh, the, when he finally sort of confronted this and went into uh, rehab, sort of did the, the detox thing, um, they, they were, the, it was late enough that they were able to apply pharmaceutical intervention that could um, sort of mitigate some of the, 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 the cravings. How, I mean, ha have we advanced um, significantly in our ability to uh, both, you know, wean people uh, from the physiological addiction, but also to prevent relapse. I mean, and, and, and how different is the is, is the basic model? I mean, in the old days you would send them off to rehab, and then they and, and you know the, the, the sort of relapse rates are still enormously high. Yeah, um, how has that changed over ten or, or twenty or thirty years? Well, I'm going to be very objective, and I actually I think that we've gone extremely slowly. We only have medications for three types of addictions: alcohol, nicotine and heroin and opioids, the opioid system. And uh, the medications, certainly for nicotine, which kills, what, four or five million people a year worldwide, is basically far from ideal. They are helpful, definitely, but um, they have a lot of room for improvement. So there has been a very limited investment on development of medications for the process of addiction, which reflects multiple factors, but a crucial one is the stigma of addiction still being considered, even though we have the data. I mean, people say, yes, I know that addiction is a disease of the brain, but. And that statement of the but comes with my friends' clinicians. They accept it theoretically, but they do not incorporate it on the way that they act. And as a result, right now, in the United States, most individuals that have a problem of drug addiction are not going to be treated, and most of them will never be treated within the healthcare system. So... And we have very few medications that we can give them. So uh, since I direct this agency that's responsible for funding most of the research on addiction in the world, m one of my main priorities has how to, do you change that? How can we advance the development of medications that can help people that are addicted? 
not negating the value of their rehabilitation programs. I don't need why I have to choose this or that. It's this and that. Like with cancer, you don't choose this antichemotherapeutic and not the other. You treat it aggressively. It's a very, very devastating disease. I, I want to jump in here because I think the point that Nora made is, is probably one of the most important take-home points from this session. I think many of you are familiar with the bill that, um, that uh, members of the House, uh, Jim Ramstead and uh, Kennedy, fought for the Mental Health and Addictions Parity Act, which passed at least five years ago. Um, and literally not a line of regulatory implementation has come out from the appropriate regulatory agency pursuant to that legislation. And what that legislation required was that an insurance company that covered someone had to cover them as equally for mental health and addiction diseases as they would if they had cancer or some other disease. Apropos the point that Nora just made, that um, we do know that the brain is hijacked and we do know that one drug of abuse begins to lay down what I call the superhighway for the next drugs that are going to come along. And as much as we want to make it about, quote, personal responsibility, that's a vast oversimplification. And just to throw the numbers out, and I think, Nora will correct me if I'm wrong, these are, I think, Tom McClellan's numbers, Excluding tobacco, about 25 million Americans as we speak have a significant substance abuse problem, and only 2.5 million of them will ever see the treatment system the way the current uh, model is laid out, which directly goes to that 90% statistic that 90% will not get access. They either don't have the coverage, uh, they don't have the will. I mean, part of the problem of addiction, whether it's nicotine addiction or any other addiction, is denial as a fundamental component of it, which eventually is overtaken by the obvious end-stage realities, and either the individual comes to their senses or those around them are able to intervene, and we know that even the best treatments um, aren't far from ideal. But we have utter dropped the ball on, on months and months and years and years of policy work by people in Congress who understood that this is really totally inappropriate to have a healthcare system which does stand apart from other industrialized nations that will treat a physical illness but will under address or ignore a mental and addictive illness, frankly to the detriment of the bottom line of the nation in a myriad of ways. Uh, I mean, do you want, and you, talk, you may not, I don't know if you can talk about this, but you, you, you mentioned a case that you had right, right. where, where, where well, shows the, the, the level of a compulsion that, that is right. involved in this disease. Right, and that's actually one of the, I think I'm very fortunate to also be able to have uh, private practice where I also see patients. Um, and that really informed my research a lot. And I think like when, what, um, what Nora said about the, the stigma and also within the medical profession, I really experienced it myself with this particular patient. She, she, now she's been sober for, for quite a few years. She's an alcoholic and towards the end of her drinking, she would buy, she would buy all these bottles of alcohol or vodka and she would come home and she had horrible gastritis so she would drink it, she would throw it up, but she needed the effect so much that she would actually re-drink, she would drink her vomit just to get the effect. And that's a very, very extreme behavior. But another really important part of, of what she told me at the time is that she read, she was at work and she was reading in the New York Post how she, there was this mother who was in the supermarket with her kids pushing a, sho a shopping cart, and she was actually caught sniffing heroin at the time, like with her kids in the, like, in the supermarket. And of course, immediately in my mind, and also with her colleagues at work, there was like, oh my God, this horrible mother. But in her, in her mind, when she was an alcoholic, she had kids, she didn't care about those kids. They were with her, with her um, ex-husband. And in her mind, this woman was heroic, that he was actually able to push through and try at least to uh, go shopping. And function while not like trying, but but really not being able to stop. 
And but, but, you know, in, in making that point, I think one of the issues that is very difficult for us to actually, when we judge the person that's addicted, we react very negatively. How could a person drink their vomit or treat their children like that or rob from my own mother? And what we don't realize is that addiction really literally has hijacked the brain into transforming it from a, a situation uh, where the signals are being perceived as one of deprivation. And I had a patient that described it to me, and I think in an eloquent way, and says, Doc, he says, it's the equivalent of someone holding you by the throat, and you will do anything you can. It's, it's just your biology, it's your instinct to try to breathe. So the rules change from, it's the same sort of thing if you've ever been food deprived for days, you will eat something that is disgusting in front of you because if you don't do it, you don't survive. And what addiction has created in the brain is exactly that state. It has usurpated a physiological state where the way that we act is very different because we are in a state where we need to survive. And I think that that understanding is very, very difficult for someone that has not been in the place of an addict, where it's not that you choose. There's choice is not there. And, I, and, I, and that's one of the things that, I mean, again, I'm a psychiatrist. My colleague psychiatrists sort of always say, well, the self-control. I say the self-control model implies that there are certain areas of our brain, and now we have a lot of knowledge about it, that regulate your ability to I make a decision, and I said, I made that decision. I'm not going to drink any more of that Coke because I am already completely caffeinated. <laughs> I make that decision, so I made a judgment. I think it's a good idea for me not to caffeinate myself more. But my ability to carry through, that's a secondary process that requires the functioning of certain specific areas of the brain. If they are not there, guess what? I may want not to drink it anymore, but I'm going to do it because I have no breaks. And so literally, the concept that they are the equivalent of neuronal systems that function like breaks and that are damaged in addiction is one of the things that has made it so extraordinarily difficult to communicate to a public or to the parents. I mean, parents that cannot recognize that the behavior is not their child trying to do something towards them to make them angry, but it's that that is the disease. I want to make sure we have time for questions. I want, let, me, let me put one more question to you just to put a fine point on it. Again, in your role as a sort of advocate, what, what, put a fine point on what is the, the significance of, of, of this emerging research, uh, like a mere study, but other things. And, and it, it seems to me that it, it is, if not yet at this point proving, but strongly suggesting that nicotine addiction, or not just nicotine, but, but, but the, the, the smoking, um, Above and beyond the, the health effects that are attached to it itself, we now have scientific evidence that it may meaningfully, statistically enhance uh, the, the, the road to uh, taking other drugs that then lead to addiction. I mean, is that, about, is that right? Absolutely. But I think it's a, there are multiple implications of a mere study. I mean, one, of course, is uh, gateways for new potential treatments. Another is uh, the notion uh, that all along, and Nora pointed this out in her editorial that accompanied the article, all along we've been hearing a great deal about marijuana as the gateway drug. It may turn out that the true gateway drug is nicotine. And, um, you know, and I mean, an example from my own family, my mother was one of 16 who grew to adulthood. My grandmother had 23 pregnancies. Every one of my aunts and uncles who have died, and all but three have, have died of tobacco-related causes. What was the Sentinel event? World War II and my family being Canadian, and my five uncles and one aunt 
you know, being drafted into the service when England joined. And the first thing that confronted them were cigarettes. And they, they left non-smokers and came back chain smokers. And that set in motion a pattern that stayed in our family forever. And it was my pattern. I, when I quit, I smoked three packs a day. How did you quit? I, 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 I quit many ways and many times. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, in fact, you know, can you imagine being the associate dean of Columbia University's School of Public Health and a chain smoker and have the dean call you and say, it's a smoke-free environment, Cheryl, you're the associate dean. And I said to him, you have a choice. You can fire me, or you can put up with me smoking in my office. And that goes to show you, I mean, to me, that's the equivalent of what, what Nora just described. And, and one of my fantasies is to wave a wand and addict every member of the Senate and the House to a three-pack-a-day <laughs> nicotine habit, close the door, and see what would happen. Because until you have been that addicted, you have no idea what the physiological reaction is. And one of them for me and for many of my scientific colleagues is when I did finally quit nicotine at all forms, you know, replacement therapy, everything. I could not write a coherent paragraph for over a year. Wow. It was extraordinary. I mean, my brain was, in, was a different brain. What made my brain work was gone. It was like someone took the hard drive out of my brain. And I've had many people say that to me. So it's quite extraordinary experience. And, and then when you got go through, through that, do you feel better now? I mean, of course. I mean, I just had my 20th um, anniversary last Mother's Day. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, but, you know, there are 45 million of me still in the United States, and, and I have great empathy for them. And I know, you know people say, oh, it's disgusting. How could they do it? They're so, you know, believe me, I was saying that to myself, but I continued to do it, and I certainly knew better. I could not stop myself. Well, you probably I don't up, know how you, else to describe it. You I probably, could not stop you probably end up in jail, but you could, in, uh, but, but it might be worthwhile because you could yeah. it, you sneak some, some cocaine into the water uh, cooler at the Congress <laughs> and you know, perform your experiment. Uh, whatever. Um, well, let, let, let's open it up to questions. If you have a question, please come up to the microphone here at the middle and just line up um, and then uh, say your name. And... Go ahead. Gary Lazar. You've talked about the fact that drug therapy for severe addiction is really difficult. Uh, what about other modalities? For instance, I'm sure you're aware of a study that was published a couple of years ago. Neuroscientists from USC published a, uh, the, uh, a case, uh, several cases actually, of stroke victims who had full recovery, both cognitive and motor recovery. But when they woke up from their stroke and recovered, they forgot that they were smokers hmm. and found that a very small part of the brain had been involved. Why not consider in very refractory cases the same way we treat epilepsy, which is through ablative therapy? Yeah, no, I, when that paper came out, I remember that sort of, the New York Times called me and I said, this is, and, I, and they catch me and sort of says, this is mind boggling because um, addiction is a chronic disease. And one of the arguments that I've always been saying is you can, you have to treat it as a chronic disease, like you treat hypertension of diabetes. Unfortunately, right now, we don't cure it, like you cure an infection with an antibiotic. But what that study showed was these patients, when they had a stroke in the insula, that makes you aware of your inner sensations, hunger, cold, craving, no longer work, they forgot to smoke. And, but what it actually opened my eyes was the possibility, at least theoretically, that you could cure it. And so immediately we came up with a request for proposals to researchers to look at ways they can inhibit the insula, not with a stroke, but using technologies like transcranial magnetic stimulation that actually can inhibit the brain, or using technologies that you actually can teach. This is also wild. You can teach your brain by getting signals from brain images in, in vivo, 
how to inhibit or activate certain areas of the brain. First, apply for pain. So the researchers show that you can show your brain how to inhibit the amygdala, which is the one that gives the emotional reaction to pain. So we are currently funding researchers all throughout the United States to evaluate whether we can emulate that, what happened to the patients with a stroke, without having to do a stroke. Because, of course, there are other negative consequences of a stroke. <laughs> Um, I have two questions, so I'll try to make them quick. Uh, my first question is about the mouse research and whether the mice that have been primed with nicotine um, have been given cocaine after a certain period of time has passed to see if the distance between the last time they were exposed to cocaine and the new time has had any uh, has, has changed their responsiveness to it. And then the second question is um, whether any of this research is applicable to addictions that don't involve substances, like gambling, sex, internet addiction. And I assume it's kind of hard to create behavioral addictions like that in mice, so I'm wondering... Um, <laughs> how You'd be surprised. <laughs> Food addictions can be created. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer the question about how long... We actually did that experiment. We, we um, after giving the mice cocaine, we stopped... Uh, for about two weeks, and then we gave them cocaine again, and we saw that that increase in sensitization lasted, and it lasts for a long time. But actually, if we, we give them just nicotine, and we stop nicotine for two weeks, and then we give cocaine, then we see that they don't have that, that nicotine has to be on board in order for that effect to occur. So that's actually very promising, because potentially if uh, people were to stop, if it also, also applicable to people, if they were to stop smoking, then potentially those uh, enhancing effects would, would also go away. You said something to me very striking uh, yesterday where uh, the conventional wisdom for treating cocaine addiction and presumably other addictions is the people come into the, into the hospital or the, or, the, or the treatment facility and they say, well, you're, you're smoking, but just don't worry about that for now. We need to focus on the cocaine addiction. What your research suggests is that because the smoking itself has such a potentiating effect on the uh, effect of the cocaine, that may be horribly misguided because it's actually making it harder to give up the cocaine. Is that, is that right? That's a, that's a, I mean, we didn't really do those experiments, but that is a potential implication. Yeah. That maybe by stop, like if you stop smoking at the same time, you may decrease your likelihood of perhaps relapse, and you may actually increase your likelihood of staying sober. And in fact, there is data for that for alcohol, where they've shown that they did a randomized clinical trial where they either just address the alcohol or they address the alcohol and the smoking, and they look at the outcomes, and they were significantly better when they addressed both of the addictions at the same time. So right now, we're funding a very large clinical trial to do exactly this in cocaine abusers. So we should have the answer in two years, I hope, or hopefully before that. But by the way, we can also create compulsive models of animal self-administration of behaviors. Like you can make a rat run and run on a treadmill until they die. Or you can make a rat eat and eat and eat and eat compulsively, provided you give them food that is high in sugar and fat. So we, uh, the scientists are very clever, and they figure out. And then some are food manufacturers. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, yes, indeed. Hi, um, I'm trying to catch up with everything I just learned here to ask this question, so I apologize if I don't articulate it right, but um, I run a national charity for at-risk kids, and we design our curriculum based on evidence-based practice and what the literature supports, for example, that one of the number one determinants, and this is what I've learned, and is of at-risk behavior is uh, dropping out of high school. 
So all of our curriculum is designed for prevention and intervention with elementary and middle school students to stay in school. And, and we use sports to use it as transferred learning for engagement and motivation. But one of the things you were saying, Nora, is that when you apply different drugs for uh, rehab or, or, or for the solution, that it has a, a trade-off effect is the way I understood it. And then you were uh, discussing that when you remove the element that's the addiction, I guess what I'm trying to get to is there's this other stage. And what happens in that other stage uh, uh, genetically that the brain or that the body is still doing that may not have the drug that is creating the high-risk behavior, but is still creating sort of the psychological or behavioral effects. Yeah, no, and that is obviously extremely relevant uh, with respect to both prevention and treatment. And what you are stating in terms, if you can do an intervention that can prevent kids from dropping out of school, you are decreasing the likelihood that they will get into drugs. But you can actually go even further, and there was a study that was published last year on PNAS, magnificent study on a very large cohort of kids someplace in England, where they actually followed them prospectively from age one until age 30. And they evaluated periodically, initially every year, their ability to exert self-control. So there's tremendous variability within children, and you can actually look at how well they can engage on self-control. For example, you put this uh, reward and you say, don't take it, and you can see how long before they take it. Or you can see how readily they get into temper tantrums. So self-control, they monitor it, and then they look when they were 30, and they see, they look at their outcomes, health outcomes, educational outcomes, drug abuse outcomes. And they show that those kids with low self-control at age three were the ones that were at much greater risk for substance use disorders, for having dropped out of school, for having actually therefore been much less likely to succeed. And the point of that particular study, which is why I'm bringing it back to your question, is the beauty is that you can improve self-control measures. So if you target very early on in childhood and identify kids that have problems with self-control and you tailor an intervention to strengthen them, then you're going to have a benefit not just on them not dropping out of school, but actually benefits in many other behaviors. So this is, for example, one of those things where one particular intervention can have a widespread universal beneficial effect. And is there literature on, um, I guess, solutions to early intervention with self-control? Yes, there there is, and and there was a magnificent uh, talk this earlier this morning by Dr. Kuhl, which actually was presenting one of the examples of an intervention that can improve on executive function, which is the one that you require for self-control, which was bilingual kids have much better measures of executive function and self-control. There's also a vast literature showing that teaching kids uh, physical activity and, and certain, so teaching them, for example, with yoga to maintain control over postures in pures and generalizes to control to other types of activities. So, that, so there are multiple interventions that have been shown for which there is evidence of benefit for improving self-control in children and adolescents. Um, we've only got five minutes, and it looks like we have three questions, so keep them, keep them brief, and uh, maybe we can get through all of them. So. Great. Uh, my name is Bob Wales, and I want to compliment you on a great presentation. It's interesting for all of us. Usually addiction affects some of our families in some way. 
Uh, I actually practice pain medicine, so this affects my career profoundly. Every day I see patients that are needing and asking for, sometimes not the same population, uh, <laughs> narcotics. And my question, I want to turn things around a little bit. Let's say that physicians now recognize the information that you have, and we acknowledge that it's a disease and not just a, a character disorder. And I will say that physicians aren't on board with that as well as we'd like. But anyway, let's say that's true. My problem, and what I want to ask the question specifically, is what about treatment outcomes? What about treatment pathways, and what's new in, on the forefront there? I know there's not new drugs specifically based on your research, but what is the state of the art now for treatment? And you know, how can I tap into some good resources for treatment? That is, in fact, one of the big uh, challenging problems that we're fa f uh, facing right now as a nation in terms of addiction, the addiction to opioid medications, narcotics. And uh, for many years, I don't know if they taught you that in medical school, they did teach me that, that if you have pain and you give an opioid to a patient, they will not become addicted. I was taught with that. A lot of physicians were. And now we know that's not the case because we're seeing patients becoming addicted. So, but, so that is a big challenge. How do you treat a patient with severe pain that requires their opioids and are addicted to one? And I'll ad we're addressing research on that area. But the other one is that we're seeing more kids and adults abusing opioids over illicit substances because of the belief that if they are given by, uh, by doctors, they cannot be so harmful. And this has resulted actually on the fact that right now, something that is not known by a lot of people, there are more people that die in this country from overdoses of opioids yeah. than from car accidents in at least 34 states. So the magnitude of the problem is gigantic. So how do you address it? We have uh, the treatment of opioid people addicted to pain medications actually is not very different from the treatment of patients that have a heroin addiction. The advantage that you have is, in general, you have individuals that have shorter histories of drug addiction, and in general, you have individuals that have less of a mixtures of drugs when they are predominantly affected, in general. Having said that, you, I was hoping we did a clinical trial to test it, whether if you have someone with pain medications, addicted to pain medication, you will be able to withdraw them for buprenorphine or methadone. The results did not show that, that we are seeing relapse the moment that you remove the medication. So as of now, we are recommending the use of buprenorphine as one of the treatments for patients that have pain and are addicted to their pain medications. No other breakthroughs in terms of well, just, yeah, system well, because I, I have the, the, the honor of being on the parent board of Phoenix House, and I've been on the Betty Ford Institute board as well, and I've watched this literature. Essentially, there are two, I think, take-home messages on drug treatment and, and Nora may amplify. One is that more is more, and that's one of the tragedies of the bill that I just mentioned that stands between people who need help and they're getting help. And the second is that more and more people are viewing uh, people who have severe substance abuse issues, irrespective of which one it is. Uh, nicotine I would put aside for a moment, but this is probably also true of nicotine addiction, but as a chronic relapsing disease. And so what you're trying to achieve in a person who, let's say, is a chronic alcoholic is instead of having 20 years of being an active alcoholic, they have 15 years of sobriety. That The natural history frequently, include, uh, frequently includes five to seven years of uh, being completely drug-free. And then an event, almost you could call it almost another epigenetic <laughs> event, there's something in their, in their structure that a sentinel event occurs and that event overtakes all of that, those years of sobriety or whatever. And that used to be kick them out of the program, they're a failure, go away. 
the thinking has entirely changed, that, that that is just, it happened, move beyond it, get treated again, and go on. So I think that those are like two big picture things. Thank you. So, uh, uh, keep each, each question to 30 seconds, because we only have a, a two minutes left, so. Any evidence that the, there's a link between continuing to use tobacco and not being able to successfully stay off pot? Because we, we're seeing relapse in our family, and they just let the kid keep smoking cigarettes. So like you said, with, um, with alcohol, there's the relationship that if you continue to smoke, you're more likely to drink. I just wondered with the pot smoking, it would seem that would even be more It is an inter interesting question, and I'm very embarrassed to tell you that I don't think that we have sufficient evidence for me to tell you one way or the other. What has surprised me, and I keep it someplace in my frontal cortex, not that I'm acting on it, and I'm very careful not to make this statement on public forum, but since this is a very a thoughtful audience, I'm going to make it. Uh, it's the other way around, that we've seen that in cases, for example, of patients that are being treated for cocaine addiction, there are some studies that are reporting better outcomes on those that actually were using marijuana. And again, this has to be taken, I mean, just... Sharing with you something that I'm keeping in my frontal cortex because it's sort of when you see signals, you just off. have actually, <laughs> yes, no, no, no. I have, I'm, I'm, I, so, so it's the only thing that comes to mind, but not the other way around. And I, obviously, we need to do the research to try to understand uh, those processes better. Last question. You mentioned the connection between addiction and memory. I'd like to focus on memory for a moment, particularly whether you can measure memory or capabilities of memory of children and whether or not as this goes into older years, which I suspect may have some resonance in this audience, <laughs> there are ways of improving memory either early in life so that they will have a better memory later in life or this later be, in this life. This could be a whole other hour and a half session, yeah, but yeah, give, yeah. give, give, give the, yeah. the short answer. And as for the rest of my question, I forget it completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first answer is that drugs that are called histone deacetylators, the deacetylators, which are the ones that just what nicotine is a histone deacetylator on the basis of these results, actually improve memory in animals that are elderly. And it also improves it in animals that are animal models for Alzheimer's disease. And again, you see always the coin of two sides, that a mechanism, because in my brain, what I've been obsessed, and I keep on obsessing, is the genetics of addiction uh, produce a, a disease that's devastating, and yet it has not decreased. So what is the value of keeping those genes? So they, are, they have per persisted in us humans for a reason, and it's, uh, and it's likely to have an advantage under certain circumstances. So I'm just putting it up. I mean, so, so when you have something negative, you can always look at the other side and see, well, what are the advantages? Well, thank you very much uh, to our panelists and to our audience.